Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Bill Niskanen, now the Chairman Emeritus of Cato, but the primary effect of that change is that I sit at a different place at the board table. Otherwise, I'm still working full-time uh, at, at my work. We're pleased this afternoon to have an opportunity to talk about Chris's new book, uh, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and uh, Less Free. Let me um, read you a sentence or two that was written about this book by uh, Bill, Fl Bill Flaff. Uh, there is an important book, The Power Problem, just coming out of the, in the United States uh, by Cornell University Press, which puts forth the case that the American military power naturally invites excessive or irrelevant use and that the habits of mind created by military supremacy have caused the United States to be less safe than otherwise, less free, more vulnerable, and less able to do things that fundamental national security demands. Preble argues, as many others do, that the United States has a level of military power that it doesn't need, uh, has uh, limited utility against stateless enemies and insurgents, and causes confusion between military strength and national power, the latter being the ability to actually produce a desired effect. It is a good and lucid book and deserves a wide uh, audience. Well, we don't have the, as much of an audience this afternoon as we'd hoped, but um, this is a good, a good group. Chris joined us in 2003 uh, after uh, teaching at uh, St. Cloud State University in Temple. Uh, he has a PhD in history from Temple University, and he served uh, uh, as an officer in the U.S. Navy, a veteran of the Gulf War, having served on, on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. So Chris will speak first, and then I will introduce our two um, commentators. Chris? Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thanks to all of you for uh, braving the elements today. I, I said uh, right before we came in here, the uh, forecast was light rain. If this is light rain, I'd hate to see a torrential downpour because uh, it looks uh, much more daunting than that. Um, I want to um, tell a few stories about this book, um, but as it happened, I was, in, um, I was in New York a couple weeks ago, New York City, with uh, my family on a family vacation, and we went to the Children's Museum of Manhattan. This is the one place where the kids could touch anything they wanted, and we didn't have to tell them to stop touching things. And uh, there's a wonderful exhibit there on the uh, ancient Greeks based on, based largely on the Odyssey. So there's a Trojan horse and there's you go through the Scylla and Charybdis and uh, you uh, whack an ogre and all these, other, uh, all these other things. My son, Alex, to whom this book is dedicated, uh, along with my daughter, Caitlin, he was really taken by this. And as a historian, especially one who is interested in ancient history, I'm always encouraged when my son uh, shows an interest in history, although I don't want him to be too interested in it. Uh, you know, we take for granted um, how much the, 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 these ancient stories, how much relevance they still have. I mean, after all, think about the word Odyssey. Odyssey means a, a great journey, or we hear of computer viruses that are Trojan horses, or you know, a person who makes gloomy predictions about the future to be ignored. That's a Cassandra. We know what these words are because we know the stories, even if maybe we haven't read <laughs> we haven't read the Odyssey, and certainly not in uh, the ancient Greek. Um, there's another word uh, that I like to use to describe. Uh, our current foreign policy, that's Sisyphean, uh, meaning endlessly laborious or futile. That's how uh, Webster's defines it. Uh, and that is the word that I use to describe our 
foreign policies over the last uh, two decades, roughly. But, you know, I'm not alone. And it's interesting that even many of the advocates of our current strategy admit that this strategy is costly, difficult, and might ultimately prove futile. Uh, the most recent example of this I saw a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Post, Jim Hoagland, he was speaking about the role the United States was going to play in the war within Islam. Uh, a, a, and he said, perhaps all we can accomplish is to buy time for mainstream Islamic forces in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and elsewhere to organize an effective response to the existential threat in their midst. That will be a costly and essentially thankless task for the United States, unquote. Again, an advocate of our current strategy. Another advocate of our current strategy, uh, Robert Kaplan, uh, predicted that the American brand of imperialism might be particularly short-lived because it was a fomenter of dynamic change, a liberal empire like the United States was likely to create the conditions for its own demise. Also not a real strong selling point from my perspective. My personal favorite, however, which I've quoted often, is Robert Kagan uh, from, uh, of Paradise and Power. And he says, the United States does act as an international sheriff, self-appointed perhaps, but widely welcome nonetheless, trying to enforce some peace and justice uh, in what Americans see as a lawless world where outlaws need to be deterred or destroyed, often through the muzzle of a gun. Europe, by this Wild West analogy, is more like the saloon keeper. Outlaws shoot sheriffs, not saloon keepers. Well, I love this. I love this analogy. It's just wonderful for me because, not, well, first of all, it's really badly flawed. Uh, it's based on this vision of the Wild West uh, from Hollywood, right, and the, and the enduring archetype is Gary Cooper at high noon. Here's the heroic sheriff standing out there and the sniveling, cowardly townspeople hiding uh, somewhere. You know, this is no more the reality of the Wild West than Mel Brooks' blazing saddles, with all due respect. I mean, the people in the Western territories in the 19th uh, century, they were extremely autonomous, highly capable, independent people. When the long arm of the law couldn't reach where they were, which was much of the time, they took matters in their own hands. And we have a wonderful example of this when the James Younger gang, Jesse James and his brothers and Younger, they attempted to rob the First National Bank in Northfield, Minnesota in September 1876, and the townspeople cut them to pieces. So, you know, we have a different model for the Wild West that is not what uh, Bob Kagan would have you believe. But it's not just flawed because it's historically inaccurate. It's also curious uh, if it's intended to increase public support for this mission. I mean, let's think about this. We are playing this role of embattled sheriff. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year providing security so that others don't have to. Uh, we take risks, including the chance of being shot by outlaws, uh, but we supposedly expect nothing in return. In fact, a lot of times you hear people describe our strategy, and we measure the success or failure of our efforts not by how well we are doing, but rather by how others are doing. And so I ask, why, why have we borne such costs and incurred such risks so that others may benefit from our largesse? Well, here's why I return to Sisyphus and the ancients, or we also could use Goliath. You know, Goliath, after all, he was, he was strong and, and enormously powerful. That's why he was the most feared of the Philistines. But, of course, his great strength was both a blessing and a curse. He was, of course, brought down by David Stone. Um, but I wonder if our situation is not more akin to Sisyphus, uh, the man condemned to roll an enormous rock up a mountain. And when the rock came to the summit, it would roll back down into the valley, and he'd be 
begin this process anew for eternity. Well, I had to go back and check my story a little bit because, of course, people do know this story. We know about Sisyphus, but they don't really know, I think many people don't know, why is it the gods imposed this horrible punishment on Sisyphus? What did he do? It was so horrible. Well, it turns out he was a crafty man and... Um, He tricked uh, Persephone, the queen of the underworld, uh, into allowing him to return to the world of the living. And when the gods figured this out, they retrieved him to Hades, and they were not content to merely retrieve him there, but they punished him. They they, they figured the the worst form of comeuppance for a crafty man like Sisyphus would be to perform an impossible task for eternity. So I wonder, several millennia from now, when historians take their children to the Children's Museum of wherever, and they're looking back on this period, and they see the United States standing bestride the world like a colossus, bearing the burdens of global hegemony on our shoulders, only to have them come crashing down on our heads over and over again. And these people will ask, what heinous crime did these Americans perpetrate on humanity? Who forced this costly, thankless, and likely impossible role upon the United States? Well, Of course, I'm being a little too cute here. No one forced this on us. We took it on ourselves. We were not the victim of some accident of fate or science. Uh, Michael Mandelbaum calls American hegemony a gift to the world for which we are not paid. Uh, But, you know, most people look upon this as an odd phenomenon, that we would retain this much power after the fall of the Soviet Union, two decades hence now. Uh, and, and, but we, they tend to look on this as, as though they're observing the formation of galaxies on the edge of the universe or some asteroid crashing into a planet off of Jupiter or something. It's though it were, it were some, some odd phenomenon that we have no control over. But again, we chose this. This is not a random incident. This is an, an entire body of thought. You know, the basic outlines of our grand strategy trace back to 1992 when aides to then-Secretary Richard Cheney, Secretary of Defense Richard Cheney, they sketched out the plans known as the Defense Planning Guidance, and the goal of U.S. foreign policy, it said, was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival capable of challenging U.S. power in any vital area, including Western Europe, Asia, or the territory of the former Soviet Union. To accomplish this task, the United States would retain preponderant military power not merely to deter attacks against the United States, but also to deter potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. And since then, American hegemony, unipolarity, whatever you want to call it, has had many defenders. Charles Krauthammer dismissed the mere suggestion that the United States would seek to share the burdens of global governance as merely stupid. That's a direct quote, merely stupid. Uh, Just as the uh, defense planning guidance could conceive of no alternative, no alternative, no possible alternative to U.S. primacy, he dismissed the alternatives to global predominance as utterly impractical and stupid. Uh, my other personal favorite is Bob Kagan again, writing with William Crystal in 1996, who declared that American hegemony is the only reliable defense against a breakdown of peace and international order. The only reliable defense. So we have chosen this posture 
and taken on these burdens, or more accurately, our political class has chosen these burdens for the rest of us, out of fear the world will collapse into chaos were it not for the United States uh, standing in this role, it, it, presuming that if we were to adopt a more restrained posture, uh, everything would come crashing down. Um, there are so many examples of this. One of my personal favorites um, is Madeleine Albright's assertion that we see farther, we stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future, and we see the danger to us all. Uh, that's a pretty pretty good encapsulation of that. Uh, another, it's just, you know, you, we see these demographic trends fighting over resources and whatnot, and, and we think that every single potential conflict, even an internal conflict, is likely to, to spiral out of control. My argument in this book, and it's an argument that I've been making for six years here at Cato, and it's an argument that, frankly, you know, I couldn't make it other institutions in this town or in this country, and it's a place like Cato that's been so incredibly supportive of my work. Um, this fear of global chaos ensuing if the United States were to adopt a more normal role for a country of our size and status um, is largely overblown, right? I mean, failed states and civil wars rarely represent security threats to the United States. A civil war in Mexico? Yeah, maybe. Such conditions often, however, represent threats to other countries that should, in a normal world, be expected to deal with these crises long before they engulf the planet. In fact, there is little reason to believe that this world will descend into chaos because, after all, <clears throat> just as our government is chiefly concerned about providing security for our citizens, other governments are presumably interested in the same thing. And because... Local chaos, much less global chaos, is not in their interest. We should expect them to play a larger role. And to the extent that they do not, I think it is largely by design, and I think that was extraordinarily short-sighted. Um, just to cite some statistics, if you don't believe me that it actually hasn't worked, to cite some statistics, uh, we were going to dissuade potential competitors from seeking to challenge us. Uh, world military spending has increased... By, uh, U.S. military spending, excuse me, over the last uh, 10 years has increased by about, um, not, not quite two-thirds, about 66% since 1998. 1998 was the inflection point. During the same period, inflation-adjusted expenditures worldwide, excluding the United States, grew by half as much, 33%. Just two countries, however, Russia and China, uh, represented the bulk of those increases. Russian military spending has grown about two and a half times since 1998, and Russia, uh, China's spending has roughly tripled. But what about the rest of the world? Because that's the most important part. U.S. allies have not kept pace. Japanese military expenditures have basically remained flat and actually have declined a little bit since 2001. Germany's defense budget is down about a little bit over 8% uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, France has increased its defense budget modestly. When you look at all the NATO countries combined and exclude U.S. expenditures, the, uh, no country in NATO spends more than 3% of GDP on defense, and the average is 1.74%. So, the aim of our policies was to dissuade potential competitors uh, in the hopes of challenging us and uh, to deter rivals. It hasn't worked out that way, at least not in the way that I think we would think uh, advanced our security. It has not discouraged China and Russia from buying more weapons, investing in new technologies, and courting potential allies. But it has, on the other hand, increased the dependency and the reliance of our allies. They have grown weaker in the process, and by their weakness, they impose uh, additional costs and burdens on us. So, not surprisingly, I guess, I hope, uh, I propose a different strategy. 
My strategy proceeds from a particular view of U.S. power that I think is pretty close to the polar opposite of what prevails here in this city, with a few exceptions, including some of the folks up here on the stage with me a little bit. Um, most people in Washington, many, uh, see U.S. power as an unadulterated good. It's beneficial for Americans and for the world, everyone, essentially. And if there are problems, it's more a function of the style in which power is exercised, not that it is exercised. So, so we need to dress it up. We need to tie it to multilateral institutions. We need to exercise our power with a smile on our face, things like that. But I think that's false. I think that it is not simply a marketing problem, that it is a, fun that it is a fundamental problem related to U.S. power. I don't think that we need a single hegemon to police the world for the reasons I, I mapped out. Another reason that you hear about why we need a hegemon is to ensure that the global uh, trading order functions properly, and I think that's also false. I mean, the international economy is a lot more resilient uh, than the, benefit, than the uh, advocates of benevolent global hegemony imagine. I mean, the United States, yeah, we're one of many parties that benefit from a global trading order, but we're not certainly the only ones, and it would be appropriate for us to continue to contribute, but only relative to our benefits. There are many other countries that benefit, and they are not paying, uh, and we should be looking to distribute those burdens. Now, I'll close with this, because I don't want to sound um, naive or overly optimistic, uh, and I don't think I am, because it will be very difficult to make this transition. There will be a lot of resistance for the United States to draw back, because First and foremost, I'm arguing that other countries will have to do more. And from their perspective, for many countries, it is in their interest to be able to sh shed and, and shift some of the burdens of defense onto American taxpayers than bearing the burdens themselves. So my argument ultimately rests on us driving change, the American people driving change, not the change being forced on us from the outside, which is a little different, of course, from traditional realist theory, I would admit. Okay, because for a long time we've predicted that there would be balancing against us. We haven't seen a lot of that, some not really hard balancing. This is my argument that this must be driven internally by the United States. Not necessarily, I, and I believe that a world that has multiple centers of power and has regional powers that are capable of dealing with problems in their respective regions before they become global challenges, I believe that would be a better world order. I believe that to be true, and I believe that we can achieve that. But I, I freely concede that the transition from point A to point B might be difficult and risky. So ultimately, we have to choose this because it is in our interest, not because it is in some global interest. Now, the American people do want change. And one of the things I talk about in this book is that the change they want isn't necessarily an improvement. And, this, and, I, and I think we should be very, very honest about this because there is this hostility to, to trade. There is some hostility to international engagement of a certain variety. My argument is that people believe, that some people believe the only way you can truly be engaged is to be dominant over the planet. And that's extraordinarily costly and risky and, and difficult. And my argument is that you do not need to be that. In fact, that our military dominance gets in the way of the kind of global engagement that would be uh, quite beneficial to us. It's incumbent upon those of us 
who believe passionately in global engagement, who believe in the benefits of trade, who believe that what makes us strong as a society is our openness and our liberty and our tolerance. And we must convince our fellow Americans that we can and should be globally engaged, but not at the same time be bearing all of the burdens of the world on our shoulders. So let me close uh, with a few passages, a few of the final passages from my book. Our challenge, and it is a challenge that other great nations have faced, is to match our power to our purpose, to see our power as a means to an end, and to shape our power to suit those ends. We should possess no more than we need, and we should husband what we have with extreme prejudice. True wisdom comes in controlling power, and that begins with an appreciation for what power does and what it does not do. It also requires an extraordinary degree of discipline. As the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, he who controls others may be powerful, but he who has mastered himself is mightier still. More than two millennia later, and half a world away, Thomas Jefferson voiced similar sentiments with respect not to one person, but to the nation that he helped establish. It was the summer of 1815, not long after the United States had prevailed over the British in the War of 1812. Never again would foreign troops set foot on U.S. soil. And if Jefferson sensed immense uh, a measure of triumphalism in the air, he hoped it wouldn't go to everyone's head. He predicted that one day, in the not-so-distant future, Americans, quote, may shake a rod over the heads of all, which may make the stoutest of them tremble. But I hope our wisdom will grow with our power and teach us that the less we use our power, the greater it will be. That we may shake a rod and make the world tremble is no longer in dispute. But whether we have the wisdom to control our power remains very much an open question. I hope that we do. Some military power is necessary. Too much is a problem. It's a problem that we alone can solve if only we choose to do so. Thank you. Our first commentator this afternoon is Larry Korb, who is now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a senior advisor to the Center for Defense Information. I've known Larry for a long period of time. He was an assistant secretary of defense for Manpower Reserve Affairs, Installations, and Logistics from 1981 to 1985. He had uh, previously served for four years as a naval flight officer, and he retired from the Naval Reserve with the rank of a captain. Now, we don't have to go back that far to recognize that there were times that uh, many people thought were dangerous but were handled well. Uh, I think one of the more important things that President Reagan did, for example, is to pull the Marines out of Lebanon after uh, a terrorist had killed about 250 Marines by bombing a, a barracks over there. He had also was under great pressure at that time to put American troops in Central America. Uh, many of the governments in Central America were subject to various kinds of guerrilla activities, and he did not do that. So um, there is a way to have influence and power over the world, and ultimately, um, Reagan orchestrated the end of the Cold War, which is really quite important. So let's, uh, let's welcome um, Larry Korb uh, for a comment on the book. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bill. It's a great honor to be here. 
I was telling some of the people I work with on the way over that uh, Bill Niskanen is one of my heroes in government because a lot of people go into government and they sort of lose their identity and don't speak truth to power. I can remember sitting at meetings with Bill and he was talking about what budget deficits were going to do to the country at the time Reagan was actually doubling the national debt. And another meeting we had, I don't know if you remember this, about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And, of course, my organization, the Pentagon, wanted to fill it up in case we need it. And Bill said, that's ridiculous. And, and somebody said, well, what happens if we have a war? Are we going to get the oil? He said, you buy it. And they said, well, what do you mean? He said, you pay enough, you'll get it. And uh, so, uh, you know, I always admired uh, Bill. And actually, uh, Chris mentioned about uh, only Cato would uh, provide the setting for this. Uh, I remember Bill and I, we were back at American Enterprise Institute, too. And, you know, we, back then, we were able to do things. I remember writing an article there about why we didn't need the B-1 bomber. And uh, Bill Baruti uh, Sr. was then running it, backed me up. Some of our contributors didn't like that. But uh, they did have that type of atmosphere back then. Uh, you know, if you read Chris's book in the beginning, he talks to dedicates to his children. His daughter, he asks his daughter when she grows up if she wants to read the book. And she says, why would I want to read the book? Well, I think the thing is you should read it because it, I think, furnishes an effective counterweight to kind of the common uh, wisdom where we are now. Let me mention a, a couple of things. I think it came home to me. I was reading the book this weekend, or rereading it, because I, I read the, the galley proofs and going, going over it, and I was reminded of what happened with Bob Gates. Bob Gates came out, and you think he had cut the defense budget in half. He actually increased it. And you, oh, Gates, and I, even the president said, Gates, courageous thing. Courageous? What are you talking about? I mean, yeah, you're going to stop the uh, – actually, you're going to sneak four more F-22s into the uh, supplemental where they don't belong. Uh, and you told us a couple of years ago 183 was, uh, you know, was enough, but we're not going to just do that. We're going to double production of the F-35, which is a very troubled program. I mean, even if you think it should be built, it ain't ready to move into, in, into to that. So I think that's kind of the atmosphere in which we operate, where an increase in the defense budget is seen as some sort of uh, big, uh, a big reduction. I think another thing, and Chris warns us in the book, you have to be aware of the false analogies, okay? You know, I remember when I was in the Navy and we were in Vietnam, then it was, you know, kind of the Munich syndrome. And now you have all of these analogies. And I think we have to be very, very, very careful because <clears throat> a quick reading of history tells you, you know, that these things are not exactly the same. And even now in Afghanistan, people are talking about the Soviet experience and the British experience. And I think, obviously, you want to learn something from them, but you have to be careful of these, uh, of these analogies. Another thing I think is important in the book, a lot of people were surprised when Dick Cheney became vice president, some of the things he did. I wasn't. Uh, and if you read in his book, he talks about this defense planning guidance back in uh, 1992, where it said, you know, America should control the world with military power. People forget that. Now, what happened was, when Wolfowitz and, and company and uh, uh, Scooter Libby did that under Cheney, Scowcroft stopped them. But the fact of the matter is, this was Cheney's idea, and I think it gave you uh, a place where he was coming from. Another good uh, argument in the, uh, in the book, I think, is taking on this 4% of GDP uh, argument that somehow defense is entitled to you know, a certain percentage of GDP. 
I have to laugh. When Admiral Mullen, you know, first talked about that, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I happened to be with him a couple of years ago when he said this. I said, well, what happens if the GDP goes down? He said, can it? Well, yeah, we found out it can, you know. <laughs> so you better be careful what you, uh, what you, uh, what you, what you uh, wish for. And another thing I like, obviously, is the uh, – the references to Eisenhower. I was uh, at the anniversary of Eisenhower's speech on the military-industrial complex when I was working up in New York at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ted Sorensen introduced me as the last living Eisenhower Republican. And I, and I think and if you read the part in there, which is really significant because while, you know, Chris makes the point that getting Andy the Korean War was popular, it wasn't – I mean, he took a lot of heat for that. You know, we were giving in and all – and that's why he gave the speech about the opportunity, uh, opportunity cost. Now, having said all the good things, let me say a couple of things where I think we, you know, uh, ought to have some second thoughts about it. Uh, in there, as you might expect, somebody from here, big supporter of the all-volunteer military and against conscription. Well – when we created the volunteer military, the idea was you'd have a comparatively small active duty force, and the Guard and Reserve would be a bridge to conscription. One of the things I had to do, probably over Bill's opposition, was to get Reagan to continue draft registration. And I was not in favor of the war in Iraq, but if you go and the country did support it, remember initially Afghanistan and Iraq, we should have gone to conscription because the volunteer military was not set up for that. Now, we darn near broke the Army, whether, you know, I mean, the economy's turned around, so all of a sudden it's becoming easier for them to get people again. They can raise their standards. But they were taking in felons, you know, to meet their, uh, meet their, their numbers. And, of course, what we did to the men and women, uh, you know, with the back-to-back tours and things like that, I think really we shouldn't have done. The other thing I think is important, if you had told Americans before, before we went into Iraq, look, we're in Afghanistan. You know, we got 30, 40,000 troops there. We're going to go to Iraq, and we're going to need, you know, a couple hundred thousand. We're going to have to go to conscription. I think people would have said, wait a second, okay, because they never felt part of this thing. And, you know, if you looked, I mean, about 60 percent of the Americans approved going in. And, of course, we had the, the vote uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Congress. Uh, and, and also, you know, Chris may, similarly, Chris makes the point that the al-Qaeda and group are not an existential threat, which I agree. And he talks about they're not going to be dealt with militarily. But that's an argument John Kerry tried to make in 2004, and it didn't go over well. So I think it's important to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, I have a little bit of differences. He doesn't like the idea of responsibility to protect. Uh, I think... Uh, that that is an important thing. I, I don't think as a nation, given what we stand for, we can stand aside and let these horrible things happen. However, there's a way to do that, and that's why it has to be done legitimately. It doesn't have to be done just by the United, uh, United States. But I, I do think that uh, not only is it the right thing to do, but it will help us in this struggle against these violent extremists because I remember, you know, when the, the, the thing, the discussion about the, the Balkans, and a lot of people that I knew, acquaintances in Arab and Muslim world, were saying, well, you know, if these were Jewish people or Christians, you'd be in there, but because they're Muslims, you don't care. And, of course, I think that that, you know, certainly did help. But, again, we didn't go in alone. Now, I agree with Chris. I mean, when, I remember when we went in and Clinton and Secretary Perry and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we'll be out in a year. I thought, you're going in the Balkans and you'll leave a year. I mean, that's where I think we get, our, get ourselves uh, in, uh, in, in trouble. And, and then Chris talks about, you know, he, you know the, the war in Iraq is a preventive war. And obviously, I think 
should have spent a little bit more time talking about how fundamentally that changed the whole way in which the international relations, because we had gone back to the, you know, the, uh, you know, the treaty and the peace of Westphalia. That had been the guiding norm. This is a new norm. And I mean, if we <clears throat> could do that in Iraq, okay, assuming even the reasons that we gave were true, what's to prevent India from going into Pakistan or Russia into Georgia? I mean, it seemed to me that that is more dangerous than just, you know, us having uh, messed up in Iraq. Now, let me conclude <clears throat> in terms, Chris lays down the criteria for using <clears throat> military force, talks about <clears throat> our national security interest, <clears throat> and you want to, you know, you have to be aware of the, uh, con- uh, that get consensus among the American people, have a clear objective, and, uh, you know, make sure that you, you have an exit strategy, which I agree with. I think the key thing is, you know, what is the security interest? And that is a subject of debate, okay? There are people who, right now, we're having the argument about Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, is that in the security interest of the United States? And I think that's the key thing. I mean, Chris is right. We should, you know, should make sure that that's correct. But the fact of the matter is that's where the debate is. And I think honest people, you know, can disagree about about what it is. But overall, I think it's a terrific book. And again, it's, I think, a very useful antidote to the direction we're going down now, where a Secretary of Defense who increases defense spending is actually, uh, you know, hailed as a hero for, 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 for cutting the budget. Thank you. Larry makes a good point uh, that somebody ought to pay some price when, uh, when our politicians decide to go to war. But my own view is that it should not be the people who are asking to fight that war uh, by, by conscripting them. And I think that uh, a useful uh, discipline would be that uh, we, don't, we fight wars only with taxes and not with borrowed money. And that would be, I think, a much more effective and much fairer discipline than uh, conscript, conscripting, our military, uh, conscripting our military force. Now, our second uh, commentator is Scott McConnell. He's the editor of the American Conservative, a magazine that he co-founded in in 2002. He has a Ph.D. in history from Columbia University, and he was formerly the editorial page editor of the New York Post. Uh, Scott? One of the virtues of Chris's very bold book is that he makes a radical argument in a very reasonable and responsible tone. Uh, And when you're mounting a frontal challenge to an establishment consensus, and that's very much what Chris is doing, there's always a tactical choice about whether to go at it full bore with a polemical and perhaps even a personal polemical attack or with a calm appeal to reason. Uh, At the American Conservative, we've tried to do both. Uh, And to the extent that our view, our goal has been to change the um, foreign policy attitudes among mainstream conservatives, I would say that neither has been successful. Um, I want to focus on three discrete questions which come from my reading of the book. Um, First is the extent to which the, the power problem, as Chris calls it, or America's military global overextension is a bipartisan problem and does not fit at all into a left-right paradigm. Um, During much of my lifetime, that was not the case. Uh, The enthusiast for interventionism and for a hardline or muscular foreign policy 
were on the right and those who wanted more flexibility, readiness to negotiate, uh, came from the left. And obviously it's because the international enemy was Soviet Union and its allies. And American liberals, um, without overstating the case, had a, an inclination not to want to see the worst of them. Um, liberals obviously overcame this reluctance in the 40s and 50s during the heyday of Cold War liberalism. But by the 60s, they were in reaction to Vietnam calling for restraint. Um, nevertheless, from the 1940s through the 80s, virtually everything that happened in international politics anywhere was viewed according to how it fit into a Cold War balance and whether it was went on the ledger of good for the forces of socialism or for freedom. And uh, I myself pretty much subscribe to this view, and I'm, I'm not sure it was mistaken, but um, that everything changed or could have changed from 1989 to 1992, and it was then that the United States could have recalibrated itself, its foreign policy to a world in which it didn't face a superpower competitor. Um, the decisive period was in the calm years of Clinton's first term. Um, we've already mentioned Cheney's uh, very important defense policy guidance drafted by Paul Wolfowitz and Scooter Libby, uh, and which said that no other power should even aspire to a regional role. Um, and many viewed the document directed not only against China, but also against uh, Japan and Germany, American allies. Uh, the Times published several stories on this document, and the, the critics had a field day. Um, leading Democrats accused the Pentagon of wanting to perpetuate huge budgets indefinitely. And uh, Cheney backed down a bit, and Scooter Libby wrote a softer draft, uh, and Cheney published it under his own name. But what is interesting is that even though this document was widely ridiculed by the political establishment, the key members of the Clinton administration seem to have internalized the argument, uh, its central argument, its justification for American hegemony. Um, and Democrats adapted to it with a different tone, with more emphasis on America's moral obligations and on multilateralism. But the, the central arrogance of the Cheney document remained, uh, and which became more obvious when Madeleine Albright became Secretary of State and began to vocalize the themes. Uh, Albright professed that she was a, a child of Munich, not of Vietnam, and that the United States was the indispensable nation whose statesmen could see further into the future than those of other countries. At the same time, Bill Kristol and Bob Kagan were organizing a lot of letterhead organizations devoted to the notion of America's benevolent global hegemony. And Importantly, I don't think anybody of real clout in Washington was protesting or pushing back against this. Um, surely some did in the Congressional Black Caucus, and Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich, uh, or among policy intellectuals, Owen Harries at the National Interest, who would frequently write, uh, cite Edmund Burke, saying, I, I dread us being too much dreaded, and I dread our own ambition. Uh, but Harry's was the realist editor of a predominantly neoconservative publication. And I don't think there were a whole lot of others. And why? Why so little opposition? Uh, 
Um, one reason is surely the military-industrial congressional complex, that weapon systems need to be built or jobs will be lost, and that even during a booming economy, uh, nobody wants to give up uh, good manufacturing jobs. Uh, another is the notion that America as an indispensable nation is very flattering to Washington elites, and one doesn't aspire to be Secretary of State or assistant to the assistant of the Secretary of State with all the sacrifices that such a career choice entails in order to orchestrate the withdrawal of the United States from the pinnacle of power. Uh, I would also think that the Israel lobby played some role in it. It had helped persuade American politicians of both parties of the necessity of dual containment to treat both Iran and Iraq as potential adversaries. Um, and the, uh, the embargo on Iraq was creating a lot of suffering in, in that country, which was uh, noticed in the Arab world, but not in Washington. Let me move to the, I think, the most controversial part of Chris's book, and that is the argument that the extension of our military power all over the globe <laughs> does not make us more secure, but much less so. Uh, this claim borders on the incendiary. Uh, a variant of it produced the most volcanic moment in last year's presidential debates when Ron Paul said that one of the major reasons we were attacked on 9-11 is that we were over there. Um, Rudy Giuliani won the GOP applause meter by demanding that Dr. Paul apologize, and Paul did not. Um, I regret that Paul, instead of citing, as he did, some rather vague CIA warnings about blowback, did not, as Chris does in his book, cite the Defense Science Board and the 9-11 Commission report to the effect that America's policies, not its freedoms or its culture, exact widespread resentment in the Arab world, making it far easier for people who want to harm us to find recruits. Um, nor did... Uh, Ron Paul, quote, uh, as Chris does Bob Kagan, saying that it is our global role that makes us the primary target of terrorism, and sometimes the only one. Uh, I doubt there's anyone here who, who hasn't contemplated the odds of some sort of nuclear device going off in Washington uh, in the next decade or so. Uh, it's a risk we all are willing to live with. Um, just last week in my neighborhood of Cleveland Park, I noticed a street sign on Connecticut Avenue saying evacuation route and pointing north. Um, I, I think this is the key, the key argument in Chris's book, that our, our global role makes us less safe rather than more safe. Um, obviously, many people in many parts of the world have been victimized by terrorism. But if you are... Uh, if you, are, if you have armed forces all over the world killing a lot of people, it dr dramatically raises the prospect that some people will try to kill you in return. Um, I'm pretty pessimistic that we're going to withdraw gracefully from this perch without some terrible uh, intervention first. Uh, for Burkean reasons, I believe that nations have character and traditions which are very difficult to alter, and the basic tradition of American foreign policy for two centuries has been expansion. Uh, this despite the nice phrases from, and wise phrases from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Quincy Adams. 
I believe that President Obama was likely to have an intuitive sympathy to Chris's arguments and to many, uh, and that he has an intuitive understanding that America is not the center of the world and probably more than any previous American president has an ability to see our country as others see us. But he's chosen people to staff his administration who are very much in the liberal hawk, Madeleine Albright part of the policy spectrum. And if you're set on changing the course of American foreign policy, it doesn't seem obvious to me that you would choose to do it, Hillary Clinton and Richard Holbrook and Dennis Ross and Marine Commander James Jones. Um, we all know the names of very innovative foreign policy thinkers who have not been getting any calls from the White House or the State Department. And we know that Obama was not willing to spend any political capital on Chaz Freeman. So to the extent that personnel policy is policy, I'm, I'm not that optimistic on that note. Thank you. Chris, you want to make some comments? Um, let me thank you both, Larry and uh, Scott, for your comments. And thanks to Bill for pinch hitting on short notice. I appreciate it very much. Um, I, I do I do want to follow up on the, the point that Scott made about um, one of the only memorable moments in the Republican uh, primaries that I that I that sticks out in my mind. Uh, I do think it's important to focus on the costs of our power and to count those costs accurately and holistically. Uh, it is easy, relatively easy to count the costs in dollar terms. And I try to do that, um, but I, and, and hopefully uh, shed some light on some of what we spend, some of the money that we spend on our military. But my argument is that the costs go much beyond that. The costs also include the changing character of our system of government, a system that the, the founders designed very explicitly to control the war powers because they were so concerned about power concentrating in the hands of, in Washington and power especially concentrating in the White House at the expense of Congress. I also think it's important to, uh, to point out the costs uh, of our being involved in disputes that are not centrally our concern and should not be centrally our concern, but as I say on several occasions, are other people's concern, and appropriately so. Um, and so this is where I think it's useful to respond, just to, to Larry's point about the responsibility to protect. Even the advocates for responsibility to protect will tell you uh, that they do, not ex they do not expect that a government or a country would, would go to extraordinary lengths uh, and risking the lives of its own citizens to uh, rescue others from great distress. And again, I think we're especially talking here about genocide, ethnic cleansing, man-made disasters, not uh, uh, natural disasters like the tsunami, which, is, which falls in a di slightly different category, for example, or an earthquake or something like that. Uh, and the analogy that I use in the book is of uh, a person standing on the end of a pier with a life ring. If you see someone drowning in the water... Uh, what do you do? Well, most people will say, well, I'll throw the life ring in the water. Uh, but if you have an obligation to throw the life ring in the water, uh, do you also have an obligation to jump into the water if the person can't grab the ring? Uh, maybe they're injured. Uh, maybe they're too frightened. Um, but, of course, when we throw a ring to help someone in distress, uh, throwing the ring in the real world doesn't really work. 
because most of the time they're in distress not because they can't swim, but because someone is drowning them. And when we choose to intervene on their behalf, we're making a judgment that they are the aggrieved party and that they're not being drowned for a reason. Now, we have a roughly 50-50 chance of getting that right, um, but a lot of times we get it wrong. And the great tragedy is that uh, there is, because we have an open system and people can come to Washington and appeal for our, our help, uh, and if they're particularly uh, skilled and they have particularly good relations with uh, the media or members of Congress, they have a leg up in making the argument for why we should intervene on their behalf. And I think that's problematic. Um, and what I, what I try to say ultimately is y you may not agree with me that the core function of government is uh, to defend us, defend our security, defend our liberty. You may not agree with me on that. You may believe that there is something about our values as a society which does obligate us to come to the assistance of others. But I ask only that you also, if you disagree with me on that point, I ask that you also consider the additional costs and risks that entail in us becoming involved in other people's disputes and to at least contemplate the, op the possibility that a different model for global intervention would allow for other countries that have some measure of national interest at stake to intervene and to encourage them to do so. Um, so I'll close with that and uh, welcome questions from the audience. Please identify yourself uh, and uh, address the question to one of the three of us. Yeah, or, from, uh, wait for the mic, Ben. <clears throat> Ben Friedman from Cato. Um, on this, I want to talk about this this uh, question of costs. Um, you know, a uh, structural realist wouldn't be surprised by by any of this, and, and would say that uh, you know we do things because we can, and then and then both uh, parties uh, or groups in society invent ideologies around uh, what we can do. Um, we had a couple other ideas about the sort of costs uh, that that might be brought to bear to restrain American primacy. The idea of uh, not running wars on deficits, which would uh, put the military budget into sharper competition with other aspects of uh, spending. Uh, the idea of a draft was mentioned, uh, which would force uh, the cost of wars onto citizens, and uh, the idea of uh, a calamitous uh, intervention, which would sort of uh, bring the point home to bear. Uh, and I, I think it, that speaks to the idea that I, I think is inherent in your book, that the, the war in Iraq actually is not enough. Right. Uh, to sort of uh, uh, teach Americans uh, generally about uh, the cost of adventurism. But I, I just wonder if the panelists in general could uh, comment on other sort of structural constraints that they can imagine on American primacy or if everyone is uh, sort of, uh, uh, as uh, Mr. McConnell was, uh, resigned to uh, the current state of affairs. Well, let me, t let me go first. Uh, I'd be, I would like to hear what Larry and Scott Thank you, and Bill as well. Um, obviously, I'm I'm not thoroughly pessimistic, or I wouldn't have written the book in the first place. I mean, you have to believe that it had some impact, uh, modest though it may be. Um, and and where I am not a structural realist is in my belief that domestic politics matter and are not purely driven by. Um, the structure of the external environment. So in other words, what we do is not purely a function of what we can do or can get away with without someone balancing against us. And, you know, in, in, so from, the, from that argument, you could look at the many cases when we did not intervene uh, 
since 1989 when we might have, when we clearly had the ability to do so uh, but chose not to. Again, as I point out in the book, when, the, when our interventions are not connected to, en- to national interest in any way, when they are purely altruistic or, and, and promoted as such, it becomes almost impossible to differentiate one from the next, and then you open yourself up to charges of hypocrisy, which we've already talked about, um, which is why I think that you need to tie intervention to national interest, and I think that is – and by highlighting the costs of intervention and being um, – honest about the costs and including in the cost of war, not merely the cost of overthrowing the regime, but the cost of, of occupying the country and building it afterwards, those costs have to be counted. You have to count the likelihood of resistance from the, the powers that were thrown out. Um, you need to count the costs of uh, uh, hostility and resentment from others uh, that can have uh, an impact. And so I think ultimately it's about uh, – folks like myself and, and here at Cato and elsewhere, uh, when someone makes the case for intervention uh, to, to speak to those costs often and, and again, in a, in a holistic way. Yes. Did you – did, did well, Scott want to – No, I was going to say – yeah, I, I would say also that um, I think last fall uh, America went through a, a financial system epiphany um, that is – maybe as dramatic as the realizing that the Iraq, Iraq wasn't being turned into a, a, a democratic country that welcomed us. And I don't know. I'm, uh, uh, I think that the need to uh, continue decent living standards in America may make an imperial role eventually impossible. And I'm not – this is beyond my level of expertise, but I know that Great Britain didn't decide we don't want to be – an empire anymore. They just could not afford it. Uh, so I, I think that that um, will – is likely to increasingly restrain and push uh, uh, this administration and future ones uh, in, in Chris's direction, whether they uh, agree with him or not. Let me take a couple of things which I think are important here to bear <clears throat> on this. After 9-11, we forgot the traditional doctrines in international politics. It somehow deterrence and containment, which had worked during the Cold War, no longer worked. I mean, if you read General Zini's book, he was convinced, and he was the commander of CENTCOM up until 2000, Saddam was deterred, contained, and grown weaker, you know, by the day. But somehow after 9-11, you know, we threw that uh, doctrine out. The other thing I think that is important, I've learned this since I'm working at the Center for American Progress, the Democrats are still terrified to be seen as soft on defense. I mean, they got this thing, well, we can't be soft on defense, you know, that somehow or another we have to prove that, you know, we're, we're not. And, um, you know, if you go back and you look at the numbers, for example, Clinton, in the Clinton administration, they spent more on defense than the Bush administration had projected on leaving office. But you would never get that, you know, in terms of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the perception. So that's what I think you have to be careful. And, Bill, you know, Bill mentioned the fact that if you take a look that you brought the establishment into the State Department. I can remember it was about 2005 debating Holbrook about Iraq. And, and I said, you supported the war. 
You know, I mean, you go, and all of a sudden you look at all of the people who supported the war in Iraq. They're all in government. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I think that's an important thing, you know, to, uh, you know, to keep in mind as you worry about the politics of, you know, changes. Maybe the financial things will force us to, but in terms of the overall, you know, politics, the Democrats are still living in this fear of, you know, the second coming of George McGovern. Back here. My name is Stephen Shore. I, I found uh, much I agreed with, but I'm not clear. I don't think you've emphasized the human costs of Americans in maintaining this role. And right, I want to focus on the draft. We've had for nearly 30 years a compulsory registration for a draft which does not exist, compulsory for men only, which is another issue. Um, I, um, the amount of men and women available is the, a key constraint on American foreign policy. One idea I've not heard, I've heard it's people think either either the current, continuing the current all-volunteer force or a draft, but there is a middle ground. There could be voluntary registration and a draft of those under certain circumstances who have voluntarily registered with a draft. What would you think of that concept? I mean, draft registration open to men and women alike. But what would you think of that concept, and how would that affect America's um, imperium? Um, I do talk, not at great length in the book, but I talk about uh, the the cost of our military power and and raise the question, uh, could we obtain our military power more cheaply uh, and one of the answers is by drafting people. If you had to, and because I talk about the cost of personnel and incentives and bonuses and all these kinds of things, and if you were guaranteed of having a pool of, of ready recruits every year, um, then then the, some of those pressures would 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 go away. The cost would shift around a little bit. Um, I don't go into great detail, however, on the question of conscription. Ultimately, what you're proposing is not so different from what we have today. For me, the concern is of uh, something compulsory, truly compulsory, non-voluntary. And of course, we have, you know, there have been in in the mix for some time uh, talk of compulsory national service with a military component, which is similar to what they have in Germany. Um, And I think that's equally um, uh, antithetical to liberal traditions, classical liberal traditions. Um, I guess my... If I had a regret, not much one, I I would have gone into a bit more detail on that issue. The other issue I would have gone into more detail was on no financing of wars on on debt, which I was intrigued by but came up with rather late in the writing process, and I would have spent a little more time on it. It would be a follow-on article. Um, But but I do think it's appropriate to to think about the costs – like I said, I've said this before – in a a very holistic way. But it's very, very difficult to – put a, a dollar figure on the costs of multiple tours and the cost to uh, the, the families and to you know, the breakdown of families, which occurs in, under very high operational tempo environments like we have right now. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe Larry would have something more on that. Let me say two things. <clears throat> I think if you look at in terms of cost, uh, the AVF probably is cheaper because you have less turnover, okay? Now, I mean, he, and with the, the extra bonuses and stuff like that, I, it's still not um, 
Uh, you shouldn't do it for cost reasons. The point Chris made I was talking about is moral reasons, I think. you know, I mean, for example, you have stop loss. Look, I sign a contract to come in for three, four years. I'm about to get out. You notify me I'm going to Iraq or Afghanistan. You can keep me for two more years. Well, if you're going to do that, then I think the whole, you know, premise, you know, the whole premise, uh, you know, breaks, uh, breaks down. I am concerned, you know, with the moral thing. The other is, and I'm Bill mentioned it, you know, this, whether you agree or disagree with these wars, we should have paid for them. And I think, again, if you made, but I mean, this was the first, you know, the extended conflict in Iraq where we've ever gone to war where we not only haven't had conscription, we've cut taxes. So why would I be opposed to it? You see, I mean, and so I do think that that, that, that is uh, that is important. And my final thing, I always laugh and I think Scott's publication talks about this a lot. People are saying, well, we got the Chinese military threat. You know, we got to buy these weapons and you're borrowing money from the Chinese to buy the <laughs> weapons. <you know? laughs> here, right here on, on the aisle. Well, well, you're next. You're next. My name is Richard Youngflesh. I'm with the Northern Virginia Community College. Uh, during the Bush administration, they announced a new strategy, at least as I understood it, of a preeminent attack. If we feel we're going to be attacked, we don't wait for the attack. We can strike first. And that wasn't limited to a nation. It could be any belligerent group. Uh, in order to do that, you need a very resilient force over a broad spectrum. What's wrong with that strategy, Mr. Preble? Well, I, I do go into some detail about how, uh, why preventive war has traditionally not uh, passed the test either from moral grounds or from practical grounds. Um, uh, I like to quote uh, Bismarck, who likened preventive war to committing suicide for fear of death. In other words, it presumes that you can predict with, uh, with absolute uh, certainty that if you do not take action at point A, that at point uh, F or G or M, something horrible will happen. And it implies that you can, uh, can guarantee that this will, will occur, and, and that's almost never the case. Um, which is why, uh, traditionally, preventive war has not been justified. And, and I, I take Larry's uh, general criticism very uh, – I, I take it very well. I think I could have gone into more detail about just how much of a departure this was from not just American traditions but from uh, you know, traditions going over many centuries uh, of the, you know, proper conduct in international affairs. Ultimately, it, it is not, however, a question about international law. It's a question about – wisdom and feasibility and is it is it realistic to think that when you take preventive action you are guaranteeing or at least so confident that if you do not take action that some horrible thing will happen in the future and you must be equally confident that your preventive action will make the situation better and i don't dwell i think too much on iraq in this book but uh, the notion of preventive action in Iraq, again, presuming the worst possible scenario that could have transpired from that, it's hard for me, uh, and I think hard for many people, even some who supported the war at the outset, to see how that preventive action has made us safer in the grand scheme of things. And my ultimate argument would be that Iraq is not so different, but really is is indicative of what we're likely to encounter in other places where we use our our military power in a preventive way. So generally speaking, um, preemption, that is, taking action in, uh, in anticipation or before an imminent attack, is entirely legitimate and remains entirely legitimate and occasionally wise, but prevention is not. And that's why Bush never used the term preventable. Right. He kept talking about pre preemption, and people confuse that. But I think that distinction is vital in terms of understanding the debate. Ma'am, right here. 
like to address, uh, actually, my question to all panel members. Um, I'll start with Mr. McConnell and Mr. Corp. Uh, I have worked with the military as a civilian contractor providing mental health services. I think uh, I'd like you to address one. Um, well, let me just say, I, I, most of the military people I've worked with and talked with do not want to draft. They want to know who's protecting their back. And they think if it's a voluntary army, they know that that's, I'll be, they're going to be safe. And so it's nice. But you're right, Mr. Corb, when you said uh, it got to the point where they had to be drafting felons. In, could you clarify or ask uh, with regard to a preventive war? I mean, that sounds very nice, but... Um, how do you, you know, go in and prevent a war if you don't have good security and, and information coming? We've had long-standing conflicts in the Middle East with Israel and the Arabs. So if we look at that situation and we provide money to the Israelis for guns and they give us money back in this country, how do we change attitudes and cultures because to me the Iraqi war was going in and dealing with cultural groups and religious groups that we had no understanding about and so we just went in there so what would you all suggest if you're talking about the moral implications the costs uh, yeah we're borrowing all this money uh, and I'm concerned about the costs and I think that historically we maybe historically Wars. We've never had a major war fought in our soil except for the Civil War. So, and then the 9/11 attack. But we we are not the ones being attacked. Have things changed so that we will be attacked? Can we prevent wars? And how do we deal with the Middle East conflict, which has been around for years and years and years? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. go off. There's a lot of questions there. Um, <laughs> About, um, I guess, first, uh, uh, my feelings about the draft and the conscription army is I think we're in in danger. It's a, it's a moral problem when one half percent, one half of one percent of uh, the people in this country are paying almost all the costs of the Iraq war. And um, uh, President Bush instructed the rest of us to go shopping, which um, – as, as our contribution to the war effort, um, I think down the road, if you, it, there's some possibility that the military could seem like an isolated cast of people, uh, separated from the regular ebb and flow of American society, and it seems I, I can't point to anything uh, spe- specific about that, but I think that does pose potential dangers to our democracy, and so. Uh, and I think if we had a draft and a conscription army, uh, politicians would be much less likely to use it. Uh, so for those reasons, I'm come down in favor of conscription. Um, maybe I'll leave there. The Mideast conflict is a whole other can of worms, so I'll leave that aside. I think in terms <clears> – <throat> I think the model we have is correct. It's just that we didn't use it. And that's why we kept draft registration for the long war. Now, again, you, I wasn't a supporter of the war, but it was a long war, and you, you're going to have to do it. So either you then uh, have a bigger standing army or you, um, you, know, you, you keep this re- reg- registration. So I think you have to look at it uh, uh, that way. 
And, uh, and I think, you know, and of course the military doesn't want to go back to a draft, but they didn't want to go to a volunteer military either. They resist <laughs> any change. No matter what it is, they don't want to, want, to, want to have it. I mean, we're going to have a big issue with the gay issue here, you know, and uh, that's going to be a, a big issue, com- you know, coming up. So they always say no, no matter what it is. Uh, let me just on the on the preventive war question again. The the um, to Larry's point about about the Democrats continuing to be worried about the second coming of George McGovern. Um, you know, <laughs> George McGovern uh, earned his stripes uh, quite literally uh, in World War Two, and and that a man like that um, could be castigated as as somehow you know weak need and 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 not willing to to make sacrifices and whatnot is just absurd on so many levels but it does it does speak to how 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 upside down things have become look if someone wants to use force preventively not preemptively preventively um then that is not a mark of toughness if they can't show with some certainty that it will make the situation better. In other words, just doing something because it's tough, just whacking someone over the head or invading a country uh, does not, uh, is not a sign of toughness. It could be it's just a sign of stupidity. That's the point I made earlier about preventive war for fear of death. We need to have a, and I, I, I try to talk about this in the book, about having a clear-eyed understanding of what military power can and cannot do. And I'm not a pacifist. I served in the military, and I believe in the role of the military. But what we've, 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 it's acquired a kind of, and partly it's a function of the fact that it has become a separate institution and separate from society, and, and I'm as worried about that as Scott and Larry are. Um, uh, but we've lost sight of the the unintended consequences of military action, um, perfectly, you know, unintended. That is, we, when we go to war, we do everything we possibly can to limit civilian casualties. That's all fine. I believe that to be true, and, that, and it is true. I've seen it. Uh, but we have to take account of uh, those, those situations that military power simply does not deal very well with, like fashioning a new political order out of the ashes of, an, of an, one where never, nothing ever exists, for example. Um, so my, my advice would be to anyone who, who holds out the, the, the false dichotomy of toughness is using military power and weakness is not using it, that we all are entitled to challenge the, that false dichotomy and that, in fact, not using power may just as often be a sign of your strength as using it. Back here, <laughs> Ashley March, Cato Institute. Um, for any of you, uh, kind of a two-part question, um, I guess especially you, Chris, because you say this so often, um, with everybody in the world presumably trembling before the big stick of the United States, why then is it so impossible for the United States to exert its influence with our allies to take responsibility for their own defense and for the problems in their own region. The Balkans is a perfect example of that. And the second part is going back to your scenario of the person not just drowning but being killed. Right. To my mind, that makes it even, in a way, more urgent and more horrific. And at what point do we say it is simply too obscene to be standing on the bank saying, it's your problem, you have to go in. No, it's your problem, you go in. Right. The... Two parts. Let me ask the se- answer the second part first, Ashley. I mean, the, the problem is that we're standing on the end of every pier in the world. 
and that no one else right now, uh, or almost no one, uh, is standing on any pier. And so, therefore, every drowning person becomes our responsibility. That's part of the power problem. Uh, and, I, and it is a moral question, and it's difficult for us to stand by uh, and, and seeing horrible things happen when we perceive that we can do something about it. Perception is not reality. The ability to use military power, which gets to the other point I just made, the ability to use military power does not mean the ability to resolve the underlying problem. Uh, we've, I think, I hope, learned that over the last few years. Um, so that's, that's my point about the, the drowning man. Um, on your first point, um, I guess I challenge the premise a little bit. People are not trembling before us per se. Um, they're, they're worried. Uh, the analogy I use is to the bull in the China shop. The bull doesn't mean anyone any harm, of course, but if some fool runs through the China shop with a red flag, uh, then you know, that could be a bad news for the proprietor of the shop and everyone standing around, and that's what al-Qaeda did after 9-11 is wave a red flag. And everyone's been trembling about how uh, that well-intentioned uh, bull, will, whether it might trample on them. Um, and as far as as far as why uh, why our allies are not doing more, that's that's pretty easily explained. They don't feel that they have to, and that's a perfectly rational judgment on their part, which is why uh, we must communicate a change. Again, the message we've been sending since the end of the Cold War is don't take care of these problems, we'll take care of them for you. What's striking to me is even though that has been the explicit message in Washington, you know, don't take care of this, we'll take care of it for you, I do go to some pains to document interventions by other countries that have not involved the United States. So in other words, even in an environment in which it is presumed that the United States is the global sheriff, is the only country on the planet that will act on anyone's behalf, there have been a number of instances since the end of the Cold War where other countries have intervened and the United States has not. And my argument is that you would have even more of that in an environment in which the United States was not presumed to be the world's policeman. Now, one thing to keep in mind, there's 80,000 U.N. peacekeepers around the world. People don't pay attention to that. So it's not just us that are doing these things. Yes. My name is Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, I have one short comment and a question for Mr. Preble. Um, I, I do think, based on very fundamental theory, that democracy and war, militarism, as you have called it, they're not compatible. And right. to the extent possible, militarism should not be used. And I often get amazed when American people say, oh, our troops are fighting for democracy. I said... What, by killing people? Kill, if you can kill your opposition, then you have a democracy. You don't have an, a democracy, you have an oligarchy. Right. So you've got to talk to even your enemies and figure out a way to balance. Military should be a deterrence, not... Um, right. uh, and then finally, question is, is there... Mr. Preble, I understand you're also from Cato Institute. Yes. You are. Is there a uh, you? You happen to be a dovish uh, preble. Is there a hawkish preble here? Because I think I've met one of them. Thank you. Uh, it depends on the issue. Uh, that, that's me. Uh, um, I mean, I, I think I think it is important for someone like me making an argument for for cutting the military um, and to and proposing to do to do so fairly dramatically, not the way that Bob Gates was alleged to have been cutting it. Um, it's incumbent upon me to be equally. Uh, clear-minded about when we do use the military. It is not that it never will be used, but that we have very strict criteria governing when we do. Um, and, uh, and, so, 
at times I might be the hawk, but I, but I think, I hope, that the criteria are fairly clear to see and that I'm being consistent, um, uh, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican who's proposing the intervention. Um, on your other point about democracy and, and, and war being incompatible, you know, this book is not the place to, to argue about the democratic peace. Entire books have been written on that subject. But I do think that what we've learned over the last six or eight years is that it is short-sighted at best to presume that democracies do not fight wars with one another, uh, they do not fight wars, period, uh, and most importantly, that the military instrument is the, is the correct instrument for making the transition or forcing countries to transition from autoc- uh, uh, autocracy to democracy. I think all of those presumptions uh, have been uh, dealt a very serious blow over the last eight years. There are two developments in American history that we should uh, think, think about very carefully. For the first 125 years of the American political history, the dominant rule was uh, articulated by John Quincy Adams, which, in which he said, uh, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And that worked quite well until 1898, in which we sent uh, troops into the Philippines to combat a small Spanish uh, contingent there uh, that was not in any way threatening us and had no potential to threaten us. We finally granted uh, political sovereignty to the Philippines in in 1946, and we finally pulled out our forces from the Philippines in 1992, and only because uh, an earthquake destroyed the Clark Air Force Base. So uh, we, there, that, that was clearly a threshold event, is uh, going to war with the Spanish, with the Spanish in, in, uh, in the Philippines. And it set a, a, terrible, a terrible precedent. The other thing we should think about is that we have not uh, declared war against anybody since 1941. We have not formally, we've not gone through the formal process of a declaration of war since uh, declaring war against the Japanese in 1941. Uh, the, the Germans cooperated with the Japanese by declaring war on us because they, uh, they were allies. Um, I think that the, the war declaration process, we have, we have missed what the consequences of that have been because every, every, we've been in a half a dozen wars since that time, um, and um, maybe three or four anyway, and I think that we ought to think carefully about restoring what had been uh, the constitutional condition for going to war, which was uh, a declaration of war. Now, a third thing I think it could be a useful uh, thing to build on, and that's the Weinberger-Powell doctrine, which says you, you set a very high threshold for going to war, and then you don't economize on the on your military commitments to to accomplish it in other words you you set a very high threshold for going to war but you don't try to do it on the cheap now i think it was one of the great tragedies of colin powell's life is that he was a he he undermined that own that doctrine himself by his speech to the united nations and um that that has put aside that Doctrine, which I think had a, a great deal of value. Mm. No, Bill, I might also mention that Weinberger, before he passed away, supported the war in Iraq too. Right. Op eds. Yeah, sure. Yes, here. Uh, my name is Mike Horton. I, what was your 
hold hold on just a second for people who are watching on online. Yeah, this is Mike Ortner. What would your practical advice be to a future president that has the political courage to follow the the policy path that you're advocating? And once he's once we've taken this path, we then have a 9/11 type incident. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be for because certainly uh, you know the media and you know many politicians and a and a portion of the American people would be holding the new policy as at least partially responsible, if not right. fully responsible for this. So, what would your advice to be to that president be? Well, I mean, I don't mean to be glib about it, but they'd have to they'd have to be pretty uh, the evidence that the policy that he took was directly responsible for the attack would have to be pretty strong. It almost never is because for every uh, instance where someone can say this occurred because we did or did not do X, Y, Z, there's a whole new, there's a whole separate set of explanations for why those, those attacks occur. Um, so why is it, uh, you know, to turn it around a little bit, why is it that uh, the war in Iraq was justified following the attack on 9-11, even though President Bush ultimately admitted that he never said and never meant to imply that Saddam Hussein had anything to do with 9-11, even though a majority of Americans believe that he did. So, I mean, that's an example of where the an attack, a terrorist attack, can be used to justify almost anything. Um, again, the, the crucial point is to factor in not merely the, res- the consequences of action, but the consequences of inaction. And it's next to impossible to prove that, uh, that had you taken action at some point in the, in, you know, in the past, something else would not would or would not have occurred. That's why I'm a historian, not a political scientist, right? Um, and I, it's incumbent upon historians to be uh, to, to to craft a narrative that is accurate and complete and accounts for those things that we tend to to forget. And so I do quote maybe too often. Uh, I thought it was important that Paul Wolfowitz said before the war in Iraq that that the presence of U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia were al-Qaeda's principal recruiting device. I thought it was important that he said that and that I don't have to say it because he was right. But, of course, the 5,000 troops in Saudi Arabia were an after effect of the intervention in 1990-1991. Was that a cost worth paying? Well, perhaps, but let's at least debate those costs clearly and not pretend that everything begins on the day the attack occurs. Ma'am, you had a question over here. I'm Marie Reitman, Women's Action for New Directions. Chris, thank you for writing this book, and thank you for all you've done to enlighten a bunch of communities here in D.C. in your six years. So what would be your advice? It's a little similar to the question that was just asked, only broader, um, not as hard. Uh, What would be your advice to the president and Congress to guide the FY11 um, budget cycle for right. Pentagon, Pentagon spending. Now, of course, the, your first advice, my first advice would be they should all read your book, but just some talking points. Um, yeah, they don't have to read the whole book, uh, just the important parts. Um, the, the first point I would make is that it is, it is unwise to, to fundamentally reshape the U.S. military without a commensurate reshaping of our strategy. Okay, that's the most important point. Um, and partly that's for structural reasons, because if you do not change the military, then it will be very, very difficult to adhere to these stri- criteria. You have the problem of the man on the pier. You have the problem, you know, all the things we've talked about. 
the last 45 minutes, right? So these two things have to go hand in hand. You need a new strategy and a new infrastructure, a new military that matches up with that strategy. I believe that the, that the military that would be necessary to implement that strategy would be much smaller, okay? 40% smaller, maybe even half. But, again, I don't make that uh, recommendation uh, blithely because, you know, I was, I was a member of the, of the post-Cold War military feeling the very early effects of a drawdown that was not matched by a commensurate drawdown in obligations. And, you know, I felt that. But my colleagues who stayed in felt it much more, more than I did. Um, the other point I'd make in terms of the military budget and I do try to make this explicitly, but, you know, there's so many other people that make it. Larry's talked about this and, and a lot of people in town, Winslow Wheeler at CDI. The military budget has been a jobs program. It has been a jobs program for a long, long time. I mean, it's a subject of my previous book. I understand that it has been, but that doesn't make it right. And so I think every single program should be defended on the grounds of military necessity, full stop, okay? Do I think that's easy? Of course not. There are all kinds of political pressures, and in the, when you look at all the things that a member of Congress can do to deliver stuff for his or her constituents, military spending is one of them. So my argument is, but even in districts that are heavily dependent upon military spending for, for jobs, um, those military people and the people who benefit secondarily or, or, or tertiarily from those military spending are still vastly outnumbered by all the other constituents in that district or state. And so, for, you know, in a state like Connecticut, which is heavily dependent upon construction of submarines, right? I get it. But that does not mean that a majority or even, you know, what? Six percent of the state is dependent upon the construction of submarines. So every single time Chris Dodd or Joe Lieberman makes the argument that I've, I've brought benefits for Connecticut, for the workers in Connecticut, the other 94 percent of the people in Connecticut should be th saying, thanks, but does this submarine make me safer? If it does, great. If not, I don't support it. And then for the other 49 states and the territories and whoever else, doesn't doesn't fly. So it is puzzling to me, genuinely puzzling to me, that that doesn't hold. That the only time you really see people stand up, there are a few exceptions, rare exceptions, but the people who are most outspoken in their opposition to defense spending are those who do not have a large defense uh, uh, presence in their district. I would love to see someone who does have a large defense presence and make the argument I just did, because it seems pretty logical to me. One last question right here. Thank you. Uh, Masood Aziz, Afghanistan Policy Council. Um, perhaps part of this discussion should be the distinction between um, what security means versus what defense really yes. means. Yes. Uh, meaning that you know, obviously defense would be military power mostly. But security is a much broader issue, and defense is only part of security. And in that respect, um, the U.S., historically speaking, has had a lot more power uh, in terms of its, uh, the, its open society, freedom of speech, democracy, the longest-run de democracy, and not necessarily just military might. So I haven't read your book, but part of this discussion should be, you know, what are the other aspects of power right. that the U.S. projects that are, in fact, um, 
the important aspects. And, and in that context, it puts the military power in, in, a, in a specific position. Right. And perhaps the, the recent history, the clouding of, of the issue of the military might has clouded all these other attractions that this country has that, in fact, establishes security. And perhaps part of the things that this president is doing now, the openness of dialogue and and et cetera, would be would be part of it, but certainly not the only the only aspect. Well, it sounds like you have read my book because that's basically <laughs> what I say. I mean, it's easy at, at some level. I understand why the mil- uh, I, I understand why the military is the most respected institution in the United States. I get it. I understand why that is. Okay, these people are stri- extremely professional. They are they are making extraordinary sacrifices on our behalf, and I get it. And I get using the military as a proxy for measuring our greatness as a society. I understand it because it's measurable. It's clear. But my argument is that we should only see military power as instrumental to something greater than our ability to, you know, project power. And, and, uh, and, I, and in, in many respects, I think that our military power has distracted us or clouded our, our appreciation for all the other things that make us great. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you. Larry and, and Scott, uh, and thank you all. Um, you're all invited for luncheon upstairs. It's a free lunch, which is rare at Cato. But, uh, no free please, lunches, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but please join us. <clears throat>